thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is still a joy and privilege to share the Word of God with the saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the first century church at Corinth was a mess. Mixing into the culture around them, members of the church were in horrid sins. There was at least one prominent member of the church at Corinth, the one whose name is on two books of the New Testament. There was at least one prominent member who was participating in a lewd and sexual sin There's quarreling happening as members of the church are trying to promote their favorite theologian amongst them. They're taking each other to court to solve petty disputes between them. They're at one another's throats over food sacrifice to idols. And some are following occultic practices in the ways that they present themselves for worship. They can't even take the Lord's Supper together correctly because some folks are missing out while other folks are getting drunk on the communion wine. They had showboats in their worship service, making everything about themselves. There were some major doctrinal issues that arose as it seemed that some were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, In the series that we just did, reading through the first four chapters of Acts, you get this fond appreciation, even this longing for church planting. It's like, man, that is beautiful. You get fired up about what this local church can be as we love one another and we're growing together and we're devoted to teaching together. And then it's shocking when you come to a book like 1 Corinthians. You see just how quickly things get off the rails. There's a twofold reality in which we find ourselves. First, the local church is a beautiful and truly a gift of God. This is what we've been working towards and accentuating as we've walked through this uh, book of 1 Timothy, this order in the church. And just like we did when we walked through Acts chapters 1 through 4 a few months ago, the church is beautiful. It's something to be protected. It's something to enjoy, to love. But the second side of our present reality is that the church is full of saints who are being sanctified. Now, that sounds real good and real churchy, but take that into your mind. Really think about that. The church is full of saints who are being sanctified. That means that these saints who are set apart as God's people still sin. In fact, we sin a lot. As I was walking through all the ways the church in Corinth was messed up, some of y'all thought that probably sounded like a Baptist church, I know. It takes quite a bit of effort and the complete, utter grace of God to maintain unity in a local body of believers. 
All throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing these problems within this church while also urging this group to remain unified and work together, continue on in the work of the Lord. The church needs the urging. It needs to be reminded to stay together in this because doing life and ministry together with a bunch of sinners is very hard and it often leads to rifts. Sometimes, many times, issues in the church which find their root in the fallenness of man cause us to divide the body of Christ. Now, we don't have to put our hands up right now, but I do want to ask and see if many of us would venture to say we can think of at least a few churches we know of that exist because of a church split. You heard of that before? Sometimes this is over deep theological issues. Other times it's over the color of the walls in the ladies' bathroom. There are divisions that come up and cause tension in the church, sometimes leading people to leave the fellowship. This morning's message is entitled, What If People Leave the Church? So we're going to talk about that, but to do so properly, we need to make a distinction between something that that is very important that we need to really understand before we can dive into the rest of this. There is a distinction between leaving the faith and leaving the fellowship, okay? Leaving the faith and leaving the fellowship are not necessarily the same Thing. Our primary text this morning is going to explore what happens and what is happening when someone leaves the faith. That is, they no longer claim faith in Christ as Lord. But just for a moment, before we get into that, I think it would be a good idea for us to take a look at what we do or what happens when someone leaves the fellowship. That is, they leave this church and join in with another group of believers. What do we do? What is our response? We need to know this. Well, first, we should seek reconciliation before the exit. Whether the disagreement was our fault or the person who left, Christ teaches in his Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If as a church, if our church has wronged someone, causing them to no longer join in our gathering, we ought to move mountains to make amends. If the other person has caused division, however, we ought to approach with love and truth and seek an opportunity for reconciliation before there's ever any sort of exit. We don't just turn our eyes away from situations. Second, we need to understand separation from the fellowship does not mean separation from Christ. Track with me here. It would be very pretentious of us To believe that we are the only place, the only church in which someone is capable of faithfully serving the Lord. Sometimes people leave. It is sad. It's not something we desire. It's something that we actually lament. We should attempt to rectify the situation, but people leave. Paul and Barnabas were as tired of ministry bros as you could be. They got an argument over a dude named John Mark, whom Paul didn't want to take with him on a mission trip, right? Acts 15, 39 says it was a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. 
Both Paul and Barnabas, from all accounts that I know of, went on from there to have God-honoring missionary ventures. Their interpersonal dispute didn't mean one or the other had left the faith completely, and it would be inappropriate to say otherwise. Third, we should seek reconciliation after the exit. In our fallen world, there's going to be divisions and separations that pop up in the church. Christian brothers and sisters will not always see eye to eye, even when they hold the same faith. It is lamentable. It is something that we fight against, something that we don't relish in, but it is the present reality we find ourselves in. But when people leave the church, we should not write them off. We should desire their good for the glory of God. And if that brings us back together in the future, praise be to God. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul will write, we're not there yet, but in the second letter, Paul writes, hey, go get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, we don't get to see the background of what happened there between Mark and Paul. We don't get to see all the details there about how everything played out with Barnabas and Paul and Mark and this whole situation. But what we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that somewhere between Acts and 2 Timothy, reconciliation occurred. Church, we ought to own our own faults, call for repentance and extend the grace that we have received ourselves. If people leave the fellowship, we should seek reconciliation before they exit. Remind ourselves that separation from the fellowship does not inherently mean separation from Christ. And seek reconciliation after the exit as well. So this assumes the one who leaves continues on in claiming faith in Christ and serving the Lord just elsewhere. What do we do about apostasy, leaving the faith? If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's warning to Timothy that folks are going to leave the church. They're going to leave the faith Paul will be addressing a a specific theological problem with the folks around the church at Ephesus and how how, uh, the people are led astray, who leads them astray, and what they are led astray from. Then, if time allows us this morning, what I want to do is look at how our church should react to members leaving the faith and then conclude with a personal defense against apostasy. So let's not waste any time. i got a lot I want to get through this morning. We'll begin looking at how people are led away from the church in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read this together. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching, teachings of demons. Thus far this morning, we have been looking at our response when folks leave the fellowship. But now our attention is turned to those who leave the faith. 
They depart from the faith. Before we get into the specifics of how that happens, we're first to show that this is a real reality. This is something we are going to have to deal with in the life of the church. Notice Paul writes, the spirit expressly says. Now, in my neck of the woods, I don't use the adverb expressly very often. And so for me, at least, I found it easier to understand the the CSB or the NASB on this one. They rendered that word explicitly. They said, the Spirit explicitly says. The Spirit clearly says. So knowing that the Holy Spirit is the second per- or is the third person of the triune God, we can read this as Paul saying this. He says, hey, Timothy, God literally says in later times, folks are going to depart from the faith. Where did God say this? Where, where's Paul gathering this from? Well, it's possible that in this time in which the Spirit was working through the apostles to complete the New Testament, this was a special revelation. The concept is certainly repeated numerous times throughout the uh, 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 New Testament uh, and throughout uh, the text, the epistles that we know are inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's also possible that this was referring to Old Testament prophecies But whatever the case is, we can just take it to the bank. We can rest on knowing this. God told us in later times, folks are going to depart from the faith. That is a reality. We have to understand this will happen. It's a reality that we should be prepared for and ready to contend with. There will be those who once claimed faith in Christ who will now denounce it. Denounce his lordship even. Now, This doesn't come to a shock to us. I know I've seen many of the influential musicians and Christian personalities from my childhood leave the faith. You can do a quick Google search. We're not going to walk through all this. But if you want to look up ex-evangelicals, you can look up that term. Uh, And you can see story after story, a long list of folks from bands and authors who have left the faith. Those stories are sad. And I hope that those folks will see Jesus truly is worthy to be served. But I'm going to be real this morning. When I hear about a celebrity leaving the faith, it doesn't hit me very hard. At least not with the same gravitas as it does when it's someone that I grew up with in youth group. Church, when we read 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, it's easy to think, yeah, folks in this general sense or celebrity or big name folks, yeah, they're going to leave the faith. But we need to be prepared to deal with this in the local church. We need to be prepared to say, man, that might be the kid I grew up with. Or my brother. Or our former deacon. My former youth pastor. It's an uncomfortable concept to dwell upon, but it's the reality of living in a fallen world. And our gracious God has warned us this is going to happen. So how? How does it happen? How do people depart from the faith? Well, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching teachings of demons. Now, I spoke on this before. But this is a hard pill for us to swallow in our materialistic world. The reality that our modern society tries to reject is that 
there are spiritual forces of evil. There are demonic influences and the devil is scheming against us. If you think I sound like I'm off my rocker right now, your problem is not with me, but with Ephesians chapter six. We are all taking part in a spiritual warfare beyond what our eyes can see. Now for the Christian though, this ought not to scare us because first of all, we're, sh- we're assured of our victory in Christ. And secondly, also in Ephesians chapter 6, we see God has equipped us and prepared us for this spiritual battle. So we don't have to be scared, but we need to recognize we are in a battle nonetheless. One of the battle techniques, the schemes of Satan, is to direct false teaching at those who are members of the church. He wants to see folks make a shipwreck of their faith. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 1 there, like Hymenaeus and Alexander there listed out there. I believe it's uh, verse 18 in chapter 1. Make no bones about it. False teaching, preaching another gospel is demonic in origin. Satan, the demons are constantly working deceptions that corrupt and pervert God's word. That is why as a church, we must be vigilant in guarding the teaching of the church. We must approve everything we do in this place by the word of God. And we must realize with deep remorse when someone leaves our church because they're departing the faith that they once claimed, that individual has fallen victim to the schemes of Satan. It should cause us to react not with vitriol, mad at that person, but with compassion. We'll come back to our reaction to apostasy later, but we should be mourning for them. Let's now look at who leads folks away from the faith in 1 Timothy 4.2. It says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, this week I was having a conversation with a brother in the church and we were talking about dealing with conflict. And the question was asked, he said, in in a conflict, do you think it's happening because of the sin of the people or do you think it's because Satan is stirring things up? My response in that moment was, well, even if we could perfectly define who was at fault there, would it affect how we respond? Meaning. No matter what, we're called to respond with grace and with truth in any controversy. But in light of our text this morning, I guess I could have also said or added that in the midst of conflict, particularly in the context of the church, it's a little bit of both. There is demonic origin, false teaching that comes from the mouth of demons, but there is also human origin. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to just blame it on the demons so that humans bear no responsibility. He says, folks, some folks have consciences that are seared. They become numb to the truth of God's word and are insincere with their words. And they are outright liars. They're deceiving folks to come along with them in their rebellion to God. So that might very well be a scheme of Satan. That he's employing, but the participants are not absolved from responsibility. This is where we as a church must be really careful. We say, of course, I'm not going to follow those insincere liars. Why would I follow someone with a seared conscience? I'm not going to do that. I know the truth. Mark and avoid. It seems so easy when we read a simple verse like this. 
But we have to understand these insincere liars look a whole lot like and give off the impression of being faithful Christians. They assimilate into church culture. They may be known for their piety. They might be great communicators. They may be talented musicians willing to finally serve in the band. They may be witty entertainers that the youth gravitate towards. They give the public impression that is good and puts congregants at ease and draws them in, but they are not really who they are pretending to be, and that is dangerous. Is Brad just conspiracy theorying here? No. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. It says, no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. We'll come back to a more detailed reaction to apostasy later. But I, I do want to say briefly, my intention in this presentation this morning isn't to make us all suspicious pointing the guns at one another as we walk out the door this morning. Rather, I want to encourage us all to be grounded in the truth of God's word so that we aren't deceived. If we aren't paying attention, things will change around us before we ever even notice. To illustrate this point, take a really deep look at the screen right now. It might be, it might be easier for our folks at home because the lighting is a little bit different in here. But raise your hand if you notice the background started out blue and is now green. Go to the other one. You see that subtle color change? It's hard with the lights on. Go back and watch online. Suddenly throughout the service, we went from blue to green. We don't always expect change. If we're not looking for change, we're not expecting it. Things subtly sneak in beside us influences gradually amass and we find ourselves in a new setting before we know it the colors have changed let's look now at what those who left the faith in Ephesus were leaving behind and see how it applies for us today first Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 through 5 says these false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thankfulness with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So verse three is showing us the particular problem in the Ephesian church at this time is people who were leaving the faith to follow a form of asceticism. If you're unfamiliar with that term, uh, that's okay. It's a belief system that can basically be summarized as Self-denial to earn self-righteousness. I deny myself of these things so that I can be considered a good boy. In this case, some have been forbidding marriage and enforcing these dietary restrictions. Now, we're not given a fuller context to know why they chose marriage and food in these cases. We know that uh, uh, singleness and fasting can both be good things done for the glory of God. But the perversion of truth occurs when these things, marriage and food, are presented as a means of righteousness. And so Paul is correcting this understanding by appealing back to the creation account. 
Just as Paul uh, appealed to Genesis when it came to complementary gender roles in the church in chapter 2, he does here with marriage and food. These are good things that God has given to us. God planted it, the garden, the, 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 the food in the garden and the trees, and it was pleasant for sight and it was good for food, you'll read in Genesis. And then it was not good for man to be alone, and so God created marriage. It was a good thing that God created. We're to enjoy these things with thankfulness in our hearts. This is why it's good to pray and give thanks before we eat. We're enjoying God's good gift for us. We should resist the temptation to make it just a a ritual, a, a rote experience. But if we're consistently dwelling upon the goodness of God and the goodness of God to provide for us, we should be giving him thanks for even our food. Now, praying for our food at every meal may be in less fashion than it once was, but it's something that we're familiar with. Something that is less common that I would encourage you to do in light of this section of scripture is that if the Lord has seen fit to give you a spouse, give you a husband or a wife, give him thanks for them every day. If you're single, give God thanks for that gifting. In whatever situation you do, in word or deed, give thanks to the God who is faithful to provide for you. Now, verse five here says, what we receive is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And I want to make sure that we're on the same page with what that means. It was kind of an interesting thing swirling around in my mind as I was reading this. It, It does not mean that in our prayer, we mystically transfer holiness to whatever we receive, making it some sort of relic or or something like that. What is going on here, what this means is these things like marriage and food are holy as in they are suitable for our use. We are, as God's people, able to enjoy these things. One pastor wrote, made holy is to be set apart or dedicated to God for holy use. This means thankful prayer and an understanding that the word of God has set aside the temporary mosaic dietary restrictions allows us to eat anything with joy to the Lord. We can contrast this with unbelievers whose inner corruption and evil motives corrupt everything they do. We can do these things for the glory of God. It's basically a different way of saying, and whatever you do in word or deed or eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give him thanks. That's what that section is talking about here. The underlying principle behind the Ephesian apostasy is the same underlying principle behind all apostasy. Deceivers call evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet is bitter. Apostasy is rooted in a twisting of God's word. It's like this. God saves by grace and blesses his children with marriage and food. Apostates say that one is saved by their ability to abstain from marriage or food. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The apostate says, if you love me, you will give me no commandments. The Bible tells us Jesus is the word in the flesh. The apostate denies the incarnation of Christ and the inerrancy of scripture. 
Deception can come in all shapes and sizes. The serpent is crafty and we may not see it slide into our midst. Our best defense against apostasy is to recognize that it happens and so that we are quick to approve everything we hear by the word of God, by his good word. So in, in these five verses that we have looked at this morning, we see how the apostates are led astray, who leads them astray and what they are led astray from. They're led astray from God's good word. Before we conclude this morning, though, I want to provide a framework for how we as a church should respond when or if and really when it's one of our members. Maybe someone we've grown up with, maybe someone we served with, one of our dearest, most long-standing friends seemingly leave the faith. Our first response for, towards our apostatized friend is pray. Pray that God would open their eyes to the truth of his goodness. Pray that they would learn of their error and uh, of their thinking and pray that God would renew their repentance. We all know someone who has gone through a season of disbelief, but the Lord has brought them back into his fold with fervor. Pray that that would happen again. Pray that you would have a front row view in God playing back the story of the prodigal son in their life. We're shown in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the, the, the first step of an orderly church is to pray. And what are they praying for? They're praying specifically for the ability to share the gospel in a dark world. So pray for your apostatized friend that God would use you to be his mouthpiece and break through to your wandering friend. Next, while we continue to pray for our friend, we should not affirm their decision. Our friend has become our mission field. They must be called to the only gospel that can save. And if you think I sound a little bit too intense right now, we must understand that our friend who leaves the faith has no assurance of salvation. The most loving thing we could do for our friend denying Christ with their words is not to cling to their baptism 20 years ago and let them slide off the deep end. The most loving thing we could do for them is to call them to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. If we know someone among us has rejected the faith too, we also must lovingly follow the corrective discipline outlined in Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5. When we remove someone from the membership of the church, they are welcome to attend. We want them to come and to hear the gospel. But we are in essence saying we cannot affirm from our limited perspective that you have a right standing before God. So it's with a heavy heart and with a compassionate concern we let that person know we care for you, so we must say repent and believe. Third, while they've become an opportunity for evangelism, we must guard ourselves in our conversations. We must ensure that as we hear their burdens, and we should hear their burdens, we should hear their concerns, we should be pointing them back to Christ. But as we do so, we need to be seeking to influence them and not allow their error to influence us. Same thing as being on the mission field. Stand firm upon the word of God. Wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Don't let your preaching of the gospel become muted by the false preaching of the world. Fourth, and finally in our response, keep a deep love 
that is ready and willing and chomping at the bit to restore your brother or sister. We want to see our friends and our family serving the Lord. We should celebrate. Invite them to church. Smile when they show up. And Lord willing, should they repent and seek to be restored, cry tears of joy for them. May we not be a church full of the prodigal son's brother turning our nose because someone's past sins. May we desire to see restoration and reconciliation in the church. So if someone in our midst leaves the faith, if you're looking for the bullet points, we will respond. We must respond with prayer, discipline, guarded evangelism, and a genuine desire for joyous restoration. Prayer, discipline, guarded evangelism, and genuine desire for joyous restoration. But if you're like me, and I know I'm getting a little bit of overtime, we're, we're all right. Sometimes you're feeble in the faith. Sometimes when we start talking about apostasy, it leads some to consider, what if I'm next? Can I be deceived? I, I thought I could never lose my salvation, Pastor. As we conclude this morning, I want to paraphrase a bit of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapters 17 and 18, to address those concerns. This is Brad's interpretation of Old English, if you would. It is true, temporary believers and other unregenerate people may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in God's favor. That is, falsely believe they are saved for some time but their hopes shall one day perish. But for those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus, those who love him with sincerity, who desire to walk in good conscience before him, they may have deep assurance that they have received God's grace and can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Such hope will never make them ashamed. Our assurance of salvation is not rooted in conjecture or probable arguments based on some fallible hope, but rather on infallible assurance of faith. Our infallible assurance of faith is founded upon the blood and righteousness of Christ Jesus. This has been revealed to us in the gospel. There is inward evidence of God's grace. We have been promised assurance in scripture. We have been adopted into sonship by the very spirit of God. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is seen in our lives and keeps our hearts humble and lowly. And though we may, through temptation of Satan and of the world, through the prevalence of corruption in us, the neglect of stewarding our lives for the glory of God, though we may for a time continue on in sin, whereby in that time we incur God's displeasure, we grieve the Holy Spirit, we have our graces, our, our comforts removed and impaired, our hearts may be hardened, our conscience may be wounded, we may even hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon ourselves. Even still, we shall renew our repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. If you found all that hard to follow, let me break it down like this. When I fear my faith will fall, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. 
I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, yet he will hold me fast. Church, when we fear we're on the cusp of losing our faith, remember our faith is not in our strength, but in his. He will hold us fast. In a moment, we're going to have a hymn of response. I hope that a few things would happen during that time. If you know the Lord as your Savior, I hope that you would use that time to praise his name and give him thanks for the good things he has given us. If there have been interpersonal divisions growing in our midst, I hope that we would love one another and the word of God enough to use even this time as a chance to make amends for the glory of God. Maybe you've been waffling in your faith, surrounded by doubts. I hope that you would use this time to reach out to me or reach out to someone around you. That we would encourage you to press on in the faith. Be the mouthpiece of Christ in that. And if you have never seen your need of a Savior or Christ's sufficiency to be that Savior, I hope that you would use that time to make that known. I would love to answer any questions you have. Church, this gathering, while a beautiful, loving grace of God. It's not always sunshine and roses. Sometimes we're going to have disputes. Sometimes people are going to leave the faith. But may we thank God that though we may be feeble and fleeting, he will hold us fast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I pray that it was used for your glory. I pray that you'd be working in our midst, drawing us together and towards you and not just saying that as a rote statement, but as a real reality, that we'd be growing together for the glory of God. Be with us today. May your name be lifted high. May your spirit be working amongst us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.